Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, with a message called Christmas in Ruth. So turn to your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, verse 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. seemed fascinating to me that the account of the wise men, or I guess the magi, the Gentile philosophers and magicians who came to visit the Christ child. I mean, that account is told to us in Matthew. I say it's fascinating because Matthew, when presenting us with the account of Jesus, is the most Jewish of all the four Gospels. Matthew cites more First Testament texts than the other three. His constant refrain, This was to fulfill what was spoken, you know, and then he mentions that First Testament author, and then he shows us how what he spoke was fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Well, that's because Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, an audience that wants to know if Jesus really is the long-expected Messiah. Matthew alone begins his book with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew alone quotes Jesus as saying that he had not come to abolish the law. Matthew alone has the exception clause in relation to divorce, which engages the First Testament teaching about divorce. Matthew alone mentions that he and Peter paid the temple tax. And Matthew alone mentions that the death of Jesus, the ground began to shake, the tombs of some of the First Testament saints were split open, and they came alive, and that after the resurrection, they came into the holy city and appeared to many. See, all these events were true. They happened. But Matthew's the one who draws them out because he's appealing to the Jewish mind to consider the evidence for the messianic identity of Jesus. It's as if Matthew is constantly telling the story of Jesus in the light of the First Testament. That's why of all the people to tell the story of these Persian and Babylonian magicians appearing before the manger, well, that seems surprising at first. I mean, of all the people to mention these Gentiles, Matthew? I mean, you might think Mark or Luke would, but Matthew. Why a gospel to the Jews would mention this incident, well, now, it seems surprising. But the more we think of it, it's really not that surprising at all. After all, the book of Matthew ends with Jesus telling his disciples to go out into all the world and make disciples of all men. And for any faithful Jew reading Matthew, they might remember Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. You know, that passage contains a promise. It says, and the foreigner or the Gentile who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So as we celebrate Christmas, I'm glad that it was Matthew that mentioned the Magi. By Matthew mentioning the Magi, he reminds us what the Apostle Paul would later tell us, you know, in Ephesians 2, 15 to 16, where where he speaks of how Jesus has abolished the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and has in himself created one new man in place of the two. Matthew tells us that at the birth of Jesus, This was already beginning to happen. Not only was he drawing the faithful in Israel unto himself, I mean, we see that in the story of the shepherds or the story of Simeon or that virtuous woman named Anna, 
but he was also drawing Gentiles who only walked in darkness until his coming. And he's called them to himself. And that's where the book of Ruth comes in. In the beginning of the book of Matthew, where Matthew will soon begin the story of Jesus' birth, he begins with the genealogy. And if I might, let me take you to Matthew 1, 5 to 6, which says, And Selman, the father of Boaz, by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David the king. And yeah, there she is, Ruth, a woman who stands in the direct genealogical lineage of Jesus himself. She was the great-grandmother of King David and the direct ancestor of Jesus, and she's a Gentile. And that's just the beginning of her amazing story and why it is that she has something to teach us about Christmas. And so let's begin at the beginning. Ruth was a Moabite woman, so who are the Moabites? Well, for starters, the Moabites had a less than honorable beginning. Their ancestor, the patriarch of their people, that was a man named Moab, and he's the result of an incestuous union between Lot and his eldest daughter. And so they named the boy Moab. And in time, the descendants of Moab became a country, and they would occupy the east side of the Jordan River. And so for a period of time, they were the close neighbor of Israel. But we need to go back and remember some of the bad blood that existed between Israel and Moab. And it starts with Numbers 22, verses 1 to 3. And you want to remember that at that time, Israel was traveling to the promised land. So, so let's read. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And so the king of the Moabites hires a disreputable prophet by the name of Balaam to come and put a curse on Israel. And when that failed, Balaam gave counsel to the Moabites. Perhaps they could make Israel displeasing to their God. And so they invited Israel to come to a feast dedicated to their gods. And in the process, the daughters of Moab began to engage in pagan sexual relationships with the Israelite men. And so they got them involved in a sensual rite to the Moabite gods. And Moses responded in anger by ordering the death of every man in Israel who was so involved. And this led to a deep bitterness between the two nations. And yet God gave Israel clear instructions concerning Moab, and that's found in Deuteronomy 2 verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with him in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Now, the Moabite national god was Chemosh. 2 Kings 3 does mention that at one time, in a battle with Israel, the Moabite king offered his son as a burnt offering in sacrifice to his god, whom we assume to be Chemosh. And furthermore, some scholars have argued that Chemosh is the deity Moloch, who is indeed a perverse god. And I would say it's a demon god. At any rate, this is the god of the Moabites. Now, the book of Ruth opens in the words, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, we learn that the story of Ruth occurs in perhaps one of the worst periods in the history of Israel. The days of the judges, while those are characterized as those days when every person did that which was right in his own eyes. God's law was forgotten. National sin was rampant. Human life had become cheap. So that's the story of Ruth. 
a pagan nation, Moab, living next door to Israel, a nation that had lost her way and had become corrupt. In those days, and we have to stop and ponder, what good can come in times like that? But then I'm reminded of Nathaniel's words when he first heard of Jesus. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's a backwater town with a reputation of producing 'er ne'er-do-wells. How can anything good come from that? Back to the book of Ruth. You know, as the book opens, we find there's a famine in Bethlehem and a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons. That's an Israelite family. They decide they're going to move to Moab where there is no famine. In time, the two boys marry Moabite women, and one of them is a woman named Ruth. Well, God's law didn't exactly prohibit that marriage. However, marrying someone who worshiped other gods, well, that was prohibited. And so it would seem that Elimelech was less than concerned with faithfulness. And in time, all three men died, and Ruth, as well as her mother-in-law, Naomi, all became widows. And Naomi, in bitterness of spirit, decided the time has come to go home. You know, when she left Israel, she was a, a woman of fullness. And now she's coming back and she's been bankrupted. She's a widow without a family. At least that's how she would have come back, except her two daughters-in-law decided they're going to go back with her. They love her deeply. You know, Naomi knows something about the world. If these two women go back with her, well, they might be rejected and they might all end up in poverty. And that would be very bad. And that's because Well, Naomi's family had lost their ancestral land, and Naomi had so little to come back to. One of the women decides her mother-in-law's right, and they're on the road to Bethlehem, the home of Naomi. Ruth the Moabitess and Naomi have a standoff. Ruth says, I'll not go back to my national gods, nor my parents' home. Stop urging me to go back. Today, I make an open declaration as a Moabite woman. Your people shall be my people. And your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who promised to send a Messiah, yes, your God is going to be my God. And with that said, the two women journey to Bethlehem. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close, and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word, and your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Jesus was born in the very place where Ruth came to know the hope of the God of Israel, Bethlehem. When Ruth lived there, all of Israel can best be characterized by the last two sentences of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
But still there was a remnant that was determined not to do what was right in their own eyes, but to do what was right in God's eyes. So let's get back to Ruth. She's determined that the God of Abraham and the God who gave Israel the law would determine what was right. And so the law granted that the poor and the destitute would be permitted to go into the fields at harvest time and glean whatever was left over from the harvesters. It was a dangerous proposition to enter into fields in those days. Rape of women was common, and by all indications, Ruth was a beautiful woman. But God was with her, and she entered, unknown to her, into a field of a relative of her mother-in-law. The field was owned by a man named Boaz, most likely a war hero in Israel. The Bible calls him a worthy man, or a man of courage, excellent moral character. He notices Ruth, and he asks who she is. Ah, his men tell him, that's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. She approached us and asked for permission to glean, and we gave her permission. After all, she's not taking care of herself. She's also looking after her mother-in-law, and she's been working very hard all day. Boaz nods, and he walks out to the field to meet her. Now listen, he says to her, don't go glean anywhere else. It's not safe. Stay right here. I've given orders that no one should touch you. You'll be fine with me. Ruth falls on her face to the ground and acknowledges his kindness. Why have you treated me with such kindness, she asks. After all, I'm a foreigner. She might have added, and not from a loved nation. But he says, we all know who you are. We're all overwhelmed by what you've done for your mother-in-law. May the Lord, Yahweh, the God of covenant and the God of Israel, repay you for your acts of kindness to her. And before the day's over, at Boaz's instruction... Ruth is gleaning among the harvesters, and that day she takes home a grand sack for her mother-in-law. Naomi's overwhelmed. This is far more than she had expected. What in the world has happened today? And Ruth tells the story, and Naomi's eyes open wide. She says, that man is one of our redeemers. And other translations say he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now then, for us who are reading this story so many years later, that requires some explanation. And But before I explain, please remember, this was a time when most in Israel didn't care about God's laws. After all, they did what was right in their own eyes, so keep that in mind. Nonetheless, let's understand the issue. According to the First Testament law, and here I'm thinking specifically of Leviticus 27, if any one person sells property or loses property for any number of reasons, that property is not permanently lost. The law of God mandated that every 50th year would be designated as the year of Jubilee, in which all property would be returned to the original owner. And so if you're buying property in ancient Israel, you only held it until the year of Jubilee, and then it would be returned. Now then, what would happen if the year of Jubilee was still a long way off, such as, you know, somewhere between 20 and 45 years away? I guess your kids would acquire it, but you wouldn't. But what if you had no children, which in the case of Naomi was true? Well, that would mean that all she had to look forward to was the kindness of others until she passed away. Yeah, but the law of God was perfect. In such cases, the law said a redeemer could step forward. Leviticus 25 verse 25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And in this way, Israel was being taught that they really were their brother's keeper. That's what a kinsman was supposed to do. And as we should be aware, in an agricultural society, the person without land had no means of making an income. 
Therefore, land ownership was often basic to just making a living. And so as we've seen, because it would appear that Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi, had lost his land during the time of famine, after his death, Naomi was reduced to poverty with, without any hope for the future. And whereas it would seem that Boaz was willing to help two widows with food, they would still be beholden to him. That was no future. So it was just possible that this man might buy back the land and offer it as a gift to Naomi simply because he was a redeemer. And if you know the book of Ruth, you're going to know that Naomi was thinking about even more than that. Naomi was also aware of another provision in the law of God, and it was called the law of liberate marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Now, in the case of Ruth, Her husband's brother was dead as well. But Naomi wondered if Boaz might be willing to marry Ruth. Well, that would change everything. The duty of marriage would fall to the same redeemer as the one who purchased land for the dead man's family. And suddenly Naomi would go from being a destitute woman to a woman who had everything restored. Now, many of you know the rest of the story. It's been a long day of harvesting and tomorrow would come early. Boaz is exhausted and goes to sleep on a pile of grain where the grain was being stored. At her mother-in-law's direction, Ruth goes to the same pile of grain where Boaz is sleeping at night, and she lies down at his feet, and she uncovers his feet and wakes him up. It's dark, and he awakens and demands to know who's there. And Ruth identifies herself, and then she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your protective wings over me, for you are a redeemer. And if you know the rest of the story, that's what Boaz does. He buys the lost property and he marries Ruth and he produces children that are then added to Naomi as if they were her grandchildren. It's a tender story of love and decency in a very savage age. But the story is a story of what a redeemer can do. He restores that which has been lost. You know, I was recently reading the story of a man who committed adultery and then lost a wonderful and godly wife through the process. Added to that, he was filled with grief and shame. And finding no spiritual ground to stand on, he started to lose his faith. In fact, as far as I know, he's dropped out of church, he's abandoned his faith, he spends his time bemoaning the riches of a loving wife and a faith in God, all the things that he once had. See, it's a tragic story that I fear gets repeated all too often. But reading that story made me think, Is that not the story of the entire human race and of every single person who's ever lived? Think of what the human race once had when God put us in a garden. Think of his command to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over all the works of the creation on his behalf. Adam and Eve were a king and a queen who in submission to God were to direct and subdue and to work the creation. And all of this was an environment in which they would never die. And all that has been lost. And once it's lost, it can never be regained. They had no means to buy it back. The way back into the garden was forever forbidden as one of God's powerful angels blocked the way back and as he held a flaming sword in his hand. And so life carried on. 
Adam and Eve's firstborn son eventually murdered his brother. The human race divided to such a state that the strong and the powerful mercilessly ruled over the weaker. The godly line of the faithful was almost persecuted out of existence. And that's just the beginning of the story. We need a redeemer. And even though Boaz only restored land and a family to Naomi, yet by becoming a husband to Ruth, yet this story is his story of redemption. And it's a faint whisper of a greater redemption that awaited. Boaz and Ruth would have a son and they named him Obed. And then when Obed became older, he also married and he too had a son and he named him Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David, who became the king of Israel, and whose throne was destined to become the throne of the Messiah. And all of that was made possible by one who redeemed what had been lost. And 1,000 years after David, Jesus was born in the very same city of Bethlehem, the city where Boaz had redeemed Ruth and her mother-in-law. And this child Jesus can only be understood against that background. He has come as the Redeemer to all we have lost in the fall. He came to restore the hope of Israel, but he also came to give hope to the Gentiles, Gentiles like Ruth, who had no claim in Israel, and like the Magi, who traveled from the east to bow at the baby's feet. That's Christmas in Ruth. And might I add, that's your story as well if you're a Gentile who worships Jesus. Jesus has come as your Redeemer to restore all that was lost in the fall and to give you a hope. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think there's a richness to the title Redeemer that perhaps we glaze over sometimes. Help us to understand that deeper significance. Well, of course, the uh, kinsman Redeemer that, uh, you know, the Hebrew word is goel, uh, that kinsman Redeemer is one who restores all that has been lost. Uh, Ben, I think that's so significant because there's not a soul who hasn't gone through life and have lost considerable things, things that we wish we hadn't, um, but we should not despair. And that is the story of Christmas. Uh, Jesus is the Redeemer who restores. And, uh, you know, lest we forget that, uh, so many of us uh, spend too much of our time in mourning and weeping because of what we've lost. Jesus tells us that nothing is lost. He is the great Redeemer. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Advent season is a very special time of year but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His will in our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. 
To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.